Good morning. Happy New Year to all of you. So just a little poll here. Who stayed up till midnight? Okay. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I, I commend you for being here this morning. A lesser person would not be here this morning. So you're, you're doing quite well. I did not stay up to midnight, by the way. I, my standard, uh, Tina knows this, is some, somewhere around my usual bedtime, I say it's midnight somewhere in the world. Good night. And, and that's it. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Father, we welcome your word. We join with the psalmist in saying your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so, Father, as we anticipate a new year, as we sit on the threshold of this new year, as we think about new beginnings, we, we are glad to begin with your word. I pray that your word would find receptivity in our hearts, not just today, but all through this year, that we would, that we would desire more of your word, that we would seek to uh, take it in and, and live it out that we would be characterized more and more as, as people of your word, people who, who love your word, who tremble at your word, who take your word seriously, who put your word into practice in our lives, that you might receive the glory from our lives and that we might live as fully and richly and joyfully as you would have us live. So I pray that as we look at your word this morning from Nehemiah, that uh, you would speak through it to us, draw us closer to your great heart, and help us to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I greet you with, with Happy New Year, I also greet you with welcome back to Nehemiah. Uh, we took a break from Nehemiah for the Advent series, and we looked at the family God gave Jesus. And so now we return to the book of Nehemiah, and I think it probably uh, would be a good idea to just give a quick recap of uh, where we've come as we, as we enter into chapter 9 today. So I, I would encourage you to take one of the Bibles near you, if you don't have one yourself, and, and turn to the book of Nehemiah, uh, which is, uh, if you get to Psalms, you've gone a little too far back up just a bit. It's in the historical section of the Old Testament. I don't have a page number. Somebody want to give me a page number from the Pew Bibles? 404? Okay, so that'll get you there. And so in, in chapter 1, you, you may recall, if you were here for the beginning of the series, that Nehemiah is cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. Uh, it's a, a distinguished position he gets to uh, taste the king's food and, and drink the king's wine. Uh, and if he doesn't fall over dead, the king goes ahead and eats and drinks. Uh, so it's a risky position, but one of great honor, one of great trust, who would really have the ear of the king. And it's in this position that Nehemiah gets word from a friend who has come from Jerusalem that, that the city has been sacked and, and that the walls have been broken down, that the gates have been burned, and, and the city basically is lying in ruin. It breaks his heart, and he goes to prayer, and he prays for a good long while. It looks like a couple weeks at least, and then he asks for courage to speak to King Artaxerxes. Goes in and speaks to the king and asks him permission to return to Jerusalem 
to rebuild the wall. And he asks him for help along the way, asks him for provision. And uh, Artaxerxes, uh, under the hand of God, is pleased to give him a, a lot of resource, uh, including money, including uh, things that were taken from the temple many years before, um, in terms of uh, also uh, safe conduct through uh, dangerous territory. He gets all of these things, returns to Jerusalem with a bunch of people who are returning with him uh, from the captivity, and uh, he recruits some local Jews around Jerusalem as well, and they set out to rebuild the city wall. They do that in the midst of great opposition, which we looked at as well. How do you handle opposition when God is leading you to do something? And so uh, they complete the project, uh, the walls are restored, the gates are hung in place, the city is now defensible once again, but Nehemiah recognizes that his job is not yet done. His job is not yet done because the people of God need to be reminded of what it is to live as the people of God. And so Nehemiah gets Ezra the priest who wrote the first book of the two-volume series, Ezra and Nehemiah, to come and deliver God's word to God's people. And uh, we saw in chapter 8, as Ezra read from the book of the law, from, from the word of God, that the people were just cut to the quick uh, with their sin. And, and they began to weep and to grieve over their sin. And Nehemiah says, no, no, this is a time of celebration. You have been given the word of God. Uh, we, we learn from it, we put it into practice, and right now it's time to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's when Jews would reenact the wilderness wanderings and set up lean-tos in their, in their yards or on their rooftops and live under those lean-tos for a, a week of celebration. And so they... They turn from their, their weeping and they, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And that brings us then to chapter 9. The feast is over and the people now take up again the issue that grieved them so much in chapter 8. It's their sin. They recognize that before a holy God, they don't have a leg to stand on. And here we find in chapter 9 what repentance looks like. Let me start with a little story. The strength and accuracy of my pitching arm has never won me any awards. Uh, when I wanted to pitch for my peewee league baseball team, that's right, I never made the little leagues. Peewee League is as far as I got. When I wanted to pitch for my Peewee League team, I ended up playing third base instead. And the whole team would hold its breath every time I had to throw to first, wondering if the ball was going to end up in the dugout again. So I was really surprised when on a snowy day in my high school years, with my father shoveling the neighbor's walk some 30 or 40 yards away, the snowball I launched at a high angle trajectory in his general direction as a joke went straight down his neck and down the back of his shirt. 
It was clearly a one in a million shot, but there I was, standing there in the front yard, unmistakably the knucklehead who threw it, wishing with everything in me that one of the other 999,999 chances had kicked in at that moment. My father was never a violent man. But the way he threw down that snow shovel and started marching straight toward me, I wondered if he was going to resort to violence that day. If I hadn't been so gripped by fear, or if I had an ounce of sense, I would have run. (laughs) But I couldn't move. Couldn't move. I was frozen in my tracks, and I stood there helplessly on the front step as he stormed straight toward me. And I'm thinking, this is it. I'm a goner. And to my relief and my surprise, he stormed right past me and through the front door of the house. Now, let me ask you, what do you suppose saved me that day? What saved me? Was it my cleverness? Heavens no, my cleverness is what got me into that pickle in the first place. And it wasn't my quick wit or my verbal skill. I was so scared I couldn't get a single word out. And it wasn't my size or my strength, believe me. At six foot one and maybe 130 pounds, uh, dad could have pounded me into the ground like a tent peg. What saved me that day was none of those things. What saved me that day was my father's character. A scared kid stood there knowing he was guilty, knowing he was dead to rights, and a gracious father could pass him by because he knew the lesson was already learned. So what's the point of the story? The story has to do with sin and repentance. Keep that picture of a scared and guilty boy in mind and answer this question. How does a sinful person approach a holy God? Do you try to convince him that you really haven't done anything wrong? Do you try to suggest that the things you've done are, they really don't amount to much compared to serial killers and extortionists? Do you, do you try to impress him with your own goodness? You try to earn your way into his favor by helping old women across streets and fixing meals for people who are sick. Do you try to avoid him, hoping you won't have to give account one day? Or do you honestly admit who you are and what you've done? and appeal to his great mercy. In Nehemiah chapter 9, God's people have rediscovered God's word, and they have come to grips with how far short of God's word they fall. In fact, already in chapter 8, as they heard the word of God read, they were weeping until Nehemiah told them not to, told them to celebrate, But now the Feast of Booths is over, and the people realize again their unworthiness 
and they respond with repentance. And yet even as they humble themselves before God, they are encouraged to praise him because of who he is. A humble approach to God will lead to an opportunity to praise. And when we will humble ourselves before God and praise him for who he is, we will find he lifts us up. The opposite is also true. Arrogance brings humiliation. Stories told about a pastor who mounted his pulpit full of confidence, if not arrogance, and proceeded to lay on his congregation a knock-em-dead sermon that his seminary professors would have been proud of. He was so confident this sermon was just going to nail it uh, that he was thinking about maybe sending a recording to the local radio station, entertaining thoughts in his mind about possible syndication, and nobody was impressed. People looked at their watches, they counted tiles in the ceiling, they passed notes to one another, and he saw all of that going on, and he realized he had really missed the mark. And so when his sermon was done, he slumped down from the pulpit back to his seat. And one of the elders spoke to him after the service, and one sentence was all he needed to say. He said, if you had gone up like you came down, you would have come down like you went up. James and Peter both tell us the same thing. Humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. So Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of those times of humbling ourselves before God. And yet, as God's people do that. They recognize who it is they're humbling themselves to. He, he is not just this lawgiver, but he is also full of grace and encourages them to come to him and admit who they are. And so the structure for this morning's message is just two simple parts. Lord, you are, and Lord, we are. Who God is and who we are. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a prayer of confession. In it, though, we find a number of things that describe God and form the basis for his people's ability and willingness to come back to him after they have sinned. And for those things, they praise him even in confession. A quick rehearsing of Israel's history tells them they can come humbly to God because of who he is, and he will receive them. Look at all of the things this prayer reveals about the character of God. We're going to see several of them here in the text under this general heading of Lord, you are. Lord, you are. So I invite you to turn Nehemiah chapter 9. Lord, you are. Verse 5 and 6 tells us, Lord, you are worthy. Look at verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven 
worships you. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. Verse 6 says, you are Lord. You alone. He is uniquely God. He alone is worthy. He alone is the creator of the universe. By, by right of creation, we owe him everything. He is worthy of all we are and all we have. He is the giver of life. He is the creator of all of us. And he is worthy of our praise by virtue of who he is. But there's more. Verses 7 and 8. Lord, you are righteous. 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You are righteous. God made a covenant with Abraham and he kept it, despite the failings of his people. He is upright. In all his ways, Lord, you are righteous. But it goes on. There's more. Verses 9 through 12 say, Lord, you are mighty. You are mighty. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Lord, you are mighty. This one who rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh, who, who set them free from years of bondage, this one who divided the Red Sea and let them walk through on dry ground, who, who collapsed the walls of the sea on Pharaoh and his army, through his might, he brought deliverance from Egypt. Lord, you are mighty. But it goes on. We learn more of him in verses 13 to 15. Lord, you are just and good. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Do you see how they love God's word, his self-revelation. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. You are just and good. It says you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. God's 
word, God's laws reflect God's own character. He asks us to be reflections to the world of his own character. You are just and good. But there's more. We learn from verses 16 to 18 that the Lord is also forgiving. Lord, you are forgiving. After all of this that he had done to them, for them, It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. God, you are forgiving. A God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And because of that, he says, You did not Forsake them. In the face of rebellion in the wilderness, in the face of their having created and worshipped a golden calf, God was ready to forgive. There's more. Verses 19 through 21 remind us that God is compassionate. Lord, you are compassionate. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Lord, you are compassionate. It says, in your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. He sustained these rebellious people for 40 years. Provided food for them. He provided guidance for them. He provided clothes that didn't even wear out over 40 years. Lord, you are compassionate. There's more. Verses 22 to 25 remind us that the Lord is generous. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God, you are so generous. 
He gave them these things that were already set up for them, already prepared for them. You gave them kingdoms and peoples. When we look at the account of, of the conquest under Joshua and we see God's people wiping out entire cities, we, we're troubled, I think, and, and, and rightly so. We, we look at that when, when we see you know, them slaughtering wholesale men, women, children, livestock, all of that. But what we need to understand is that these things were to be given over wholly to God as God's judgment on these people. His people were to become his judgment, his, his instrument of judgment on these people, whose lands then he would give to his people. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, we get a glimpse of it in the covenant that God made with Abram. And he said, your descendants will come back into this land and take possession of it. And then he says, for the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached full measure. In other words, God was going to be forbearing with these people in the land of Canaan, wanting them to repent, wanting them to turn back to him until their sins reached full measure and it would be time now for the curtain to fall. Time now for judgment to come on them. And that judgment would come in the form of God's people who would come in and wipe them out and take as God's gift to his people all that they had had, vineyards and orchards and houses and wells. God was generous to his people. But it goes on in verses 26 to 31 to tell us that God is also corrective of his people. Nevertheless, they were disobedient despite receiving all of this. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. It goes on. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. When God's people strayed, he corrected them time and time again. We see through the Old Testament the whole cycle of, of the judges where he would send a judge to be their savior who would turn them back to him, but then they would uh, receive God's blessing and become arrogant again and fall into sin once more. And God would... Um, 
forgive them when they turn back to him again and again. It says in verse 28, when they turned, and that word is, is that word repent, turn the other way, do a 180, the Hebrew word shuv, uh, my favorite Old Testament prophet said, you know, the prophets were there to give them a shuv in the right direction, right? To, to turn them around. God disciplined them when they sinned to bring them back to himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Don't shrink away from the Lord's discipline. He is disciplining you as his sons. He disciplines the one he loves. He is corrective. And then verses 32 to 38 tell us that he is faithful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves." And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names, are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. God is faithful. In verse 32, he says, Our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. This one is our God, the faithful one. He says in verse 33, You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. He is faithful. God keeps his covenant of love. He's faithful when we are not. Repentance begins with the realization of who God is. And yet it is in that realization of who he is that he encourages us to come to him as we are. When we realize who God is, we can have confidence to come to him despite who we are. And that brings us to the second part of this message, and that is who we are. Lord, we are. Because the people know who God is, and because they have taken time to reflect on his attributes, they can freely admit who they are. They're not telling God anything he doesn't already know about them. They're just getting honest about it all. It's called confession. And the word the New Testament uses for confess means to say the same thing. And so when we are confessing our sin to God, we are saying the same thing about it that he says about it, that it is sin, that it is wrong, and that it does characterize us. We are agreeing with him when we confess. 
And what they confess are two things. Lord, we are prone to wander, verse 33. We're prone to wander. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly again and again and again. As they have rehearsed the history of God's people, they recognize that they fall into that. And what you notice, too, is that what he has referred to as they in the preceding verses has now become we. He talked about how God was so gracious to them, our fathers, but now he says we, we have acted wickedly. It's become personal now. It's about us. We're guilty. We're the ones who keep falling back into sinful patterns. And we know that we do it too. The words of the hymn capture our pattern, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We recognize our own waywardness, our own proneness to fall into sin, and yet we, when we admit it to God, we can appeal to him for help, for victory over it. That's the first thing they say about themselves. Lord, we are prone to wander. The second thing they say about themselves is, Lord, we are in distress. We're in distress, and we know it's because of our sin. Verse 37. It is its rich yield, that is the rich yield of the land, goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. It's because of their sins. They've brought this on themselves, and they know it. Sin has terrible consequences, and sin messes up our lives. And we know that to be true of us as well. We set ungodly priorities in our finances, and we find ourselves over our heads in debt. We set ungodly priorities in our appetites and we find ourselves hooked on the same addictions to power and wealth and toys and sex and entertainment that non-believers are hooked on. I saw a car commercial that showed a grown man looking at a new car that he wanted and, and when he spoke it was the voice of a little boy <laughs> begging his mommy for a new toy. And I couldn't believe that an advertiser would think this would be an effective way to sell vehicles. It, it should be an alarm to us that, that we are behaving in ways that don't fit who we really ought to be. That's us. And in the church, we aren't living up often to the values of the kingdom any better than the culture around us. We're prone to wander. And we're in distress. And yet here's the good news. Because of who God is, we can come to him as we are and find grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 were read 
earlier. Listen to them again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's on the basis of who God is that we can come to him and admit who we are. I think it's helpful for us to begin the new year with some perspective on who God is and who we are. We've seen both of them here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And hopefully we see this as more than their story. It's our story too. God is still who he was then. All that he was then. And we are more like the Israelites than we would care to admit. Prone to wander and in distress. I'd like for us to take a moment as we conclude to reflect on who he is. Consider some of the attributes that have come out of Nehemiah 9. Maybe you jotted some of them down. Maybe you just want to look at the text. But I want to give us just a quiet moment to reflect on who he is, to gain that perspective as we launch into a new year, that, that God is now all that he was then, and, and let's just take some time for quiet prayer and think first about who he is and talk to him about that. Maybe there's an attribute of his that came out of Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning that you just want to dwell on for a moment. Talk to him about who he is, and then we'll take another step in a moment. So let's just go to him in quiet prayer right now about who he is. Lord, we recognize that all you were then, you still are now. You are absolutely holy. And yet you are the one who forgives sin as your people confess it to you. Ready to forgive and restore. Full of grace, mercy. So Father, now we want to come to you and admit who we are. Let's take just a moment to confess our sin to him.
Father, we confess that we are more like the Israelites than we'd care to admit, that we are prone to wander, and that as a result of our sin, we end up in distress as well. And so, Father, we bring to you our sin, we confess it, we agree with you, we say the same thing you say about it, and we long to have victory over it. By your grace, by your Spirit's power, would you give us that victory? We admit who we are, Father, grateful that we can come to you and be candid about who we are. We don't want to try to hide it. We know we couldn't if we tried. So, Father, we agree with you about our sin. And now let's, let's take a moment to just come to that throne of grace that the author of Hebrews wrote about to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. What is it you need from him this week? What is it you need from him as you start this new year? Lord, I come. Let's just come to him now. Lord, we long to be that faith-filled people who serve as a beacon of light to a needy world. We recognize how far short we fall, and yet we recognize that as we humbly come to you, you forgive and you restore and you use us in spite of ourselves. Father, I pray that you would truly use us, your people, this year, that we might in new ways show ourselves to be your people, your instruments, effective in your hand to reach people around us for Christ and to grow them in him. And so, Father, I pray through this passage, would you show us what repentance is all about? Remind us of who you are. Remind us of who we are, and yet embolden us to come to that throne of grace for mercy and grace in our time of need. In Jesus' name.